Um, you know, I found an interesting illustration I want to use, but I'm going to have to change a little bit because it's about an outhouse. And I think most children today, especially in Wichita, have no idea what an outhouse is. So I'll sort of change it a little bit to sort of um, a porta potty. Um, you know, I had a, there's a house that was been, be, being built next door to me. Well, I actually crossed the street, and they had one of those green things that are out there, you know, and it's kind of a porta potty. And, and so I'm going to change it to that. Anybody know what an outhouse is? All right, anybody under 12 know what an outhouse is? All right, very few. Michael, you're not under 12. You act like it sometimes, but you're not under 12. And I do too, by the way, so we're in the same boat. Anyway, so uh, anyway, th- this, this guy who, who has family, they live down in the country, and there's some remodeling on their house, and so they had an outhouse or a porta potty whatever you want to call, and so uh, he lined up all six of his boys uh, in his front yard on this afternoon, and he asked them, which one of you boys pushed the outhouse into the creek? The culprit did not come forward. That means someone who's responsible. Now, boys, the farmer continued his investigation. Remember the story of George Washington and the cherry tree? It is true that young George chopped down the cherry tree, and he told his father the truth, and his father was proud of him. He stood there in silence for a moment, and was it long until finally the farmer's youngest son stepped forward from the line and admitted that he was the one who had pushed the outhouse into the creek. The farmer then quickly picked up a switch. My grandma used to... You suspect me with a switch. Anybody know what I'm talking about? She would make me go out in the backyard and pick my own. And if it broke in the process, it started all over. So you had to get a good one. You know what I mean? Anyway. And look how well I turned out. But anyway. (laughs) So he quickly picked up a switch and he beat his son with it severely. But Pa, after the whipping, the young man protested. With tears running down his cheeks, you told me that George Washington's father was proud of him when he confessed to chopping down the cherry tree. Yes, he was, son. He was proud of his son when he confessed that he had chopped down the cherry tree. But George Washington's father wasn't sitting in the cherry tree when he chopped it down. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to tell the truth, especially when we know that we're guilty for having done something. I mean, who of us have not, as parents, sort of lined up our children and asked, who done it? You know, those who did it questions. And there's always that one that has that look of guilt on their face, and you know it's them, and you're waiting for them to step forward and to admit that they did it. Telling the truth is hard, but telling the truth is necessary if we're going to be the family of God and the family that God has called us to be. And it is a challenge. And I think sometimes, you know, we as parents want to put the fear of God into our children. And I would sort of encourage you not to take that sort of line of, of raising your children. You shouldn't put the fear of God in them. I don't, I, and I think we should respect God, but to be afraid of God, to be afraid of God in the sense that we step forward and we admit that we have sinned, we admit that we have done wrong. Yes, there are consequences to wrongdoing, and, and, and those things do happen as a result of our disobedience to Him. But God is to be respected. He is he's a God of love, and that's why He is described as a God of mercy mercy and a God of grace. And so when we do something wrong, we should not be afraid to step forward. We should step toward him knowing that while there may be consequences, we're going to find him to be a very loving, forgiving, merciful, and a gracious God. And as we begin to talk about a God like that and 
going to go to the scriptures that we've been studying for the last couple of Sundays. It's important for us to understand in Ephesians chapter 6, where we learn where God, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving some valuable insight into the family. Yes, I think this whole concept of spiritual warfare, he's giving insight not just to the individual warrior and how to engage in spiritual warfare, but I think he is trying to give some insight into how we how we parent, how we relate to our spouses, how children relate to their parents, because I'm convinced that God is not only helping us understand that the enemy is not only seeking to destroy and devour us as individuals, I think he is seeking to devour and destroy the family unit today more than in any other time in human history because he knows as he learned in Genesis early onset if he can bring sin in between a husband and a wife and in between two brothers he can bring catastrophic results in families that last for generations to come and as a result of that I think in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10 and on, and we often look at that through spiritual warfare, I would like for you to sort of rethink that in looking at spiritual warfare, not just against you as an individual, but you in your marriage and you in your parenting and you as a child, and that I believe Satan is seeking to destroy the family unit today as he is the individual as well as the church. And so I'd like for us to contend that this, I think, is very important for us to see in regard to the family as we talk about the importance of the family. And so I want to begin by sort of laying down this whole concept of being in sync with God. To be in sync with God simply means that me and God are in sync together. We are in step. We are both together in step. Side by side, him leading me and he, he is guiding me in his, through his word, in his ways, as I do his work. So to be in sync with God, to make sure that, that, that as a spouse, I'm in sync with God. As a parent, I am in sync with God. As a grandparent, I am in step with God. I am together with him, so united with him that we are in sync, that he and I, that I am in sync with him, not him in sync with me. I think sometimes we get that a little bit wrong. We want God to be in sync with us rather than us in sync with God. But here I think it's important for us to understand that God is the one who sets the pace. He is the one that sets the direction, and we must be in sync with him as we understand his word and his ways. So to be in sync with God. What does that mean and what does that look like in the aspect of spiritual warfare? Does God have a lot to say about that? Yes, he does. In Ephesians chapter 6, let's take a look at the text. How then do we understand we must be in sync with God? First of all, I'm in sync with God when I stand in righteousness. When I stand in righteousness. I'm in sync with God when I stand in righteousness. It's important that we understand that our relationship with God needs to be sort of put back together because there's a thing called sin. For the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wage of sin is death. And because of sin, we're no longer in sync with God. But isn't it great to know that through faith in Christ, we can now join him. Our relationship with him can then be repaired 
And as a result of that, we can then be in sync with God, to stand in righteousness. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 says, stand having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, it's important that we understand that we've already talked about this concept of the belt of truth. Some of you were not here because you were students and your, your children, you were not here last week. But uh, when you got dressed today, how many of you put on a belt? Okay, some of us do, uh, some of us don't. Some of us see a belt as an accessory, something that we don't necessarily need, but we may put on to, to look a certain way. Some of us put it on to keep our pants up, okay? And uh, because we're getting so slim and so good looking that we wear belts to keep our pants up, but that wouldn't be me. But anyway, and so we talked about last week this belt of truth, right? Now, let me tell you what the belt of truth is, guys. The belt of truth is simply the truth of God. It is the truth about God, revealed through the Word of God, and the person of Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. The truth about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the person, and as the person, he is true. He is the truth. And when we hear the gospel and the truth about the gospel, we then are convicted of our sin. We see Jesus as the answer to our sin, and we turn from sin, and we turn to him and place our faith and trust in him as our Savior. We embrace the truth. We put the truth around our waist, and it now becomes our security. It's something that wraps around us and becomes ours. Now, once we come to faith in that truth, we are then, as Christians then, to continue in that truth, meaning we're to live it out in our day-to-day lives, meaning that truth simply tells us how to live. Okay, let's, let's, let's put it this way. How does, how does your mom and dad know to be the kind of husband and wife they need to be? The Bible talks about the truth between a husband and wife. Are you ready for this, guys? The truth about marriage is men. The Bible doesn't give you an option. The Bible says that we as the husbands are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, I could, I could speak on a month on just that alone. Guys, you don't have a choice whether or not you are to love your wives. The truth is, in in the Bible, it says that the husbands are to love their wives. You are commanded as a husband to love your wife, not just love her with an emotional love, but love her so deeply that you are willing to die for her. That's how deep your love is to be for your spouse, guys. Wives, you ready for this? The wives, the Bible says, are to respect your husbands. That's not an option for you. Well, I'll respect him if. I'll respect him when. No, you are called to respect your husband. That is a command. So husbands are to love and wives are to respect. Children, you are called by God to obey your parents. Not whether you like it or not, but the truth is you are to obey them. Unless... What I think they want you to do is to disobey God. But I don't think any parent in here would ask their children to do something that would cause them to disobey God. Would they? Children? Older children? Younger children? Well, I don't really want to obey dad in that. I don't like that. It's not an option. The Bible says that children are to obey their parents. Uh, parents, the Bible says that you are not to provoke your children to anger. How do you like that, parents? 
Don't provoke your children to anger. That's not a request. That is a command. Don't drive your kids to be resentful and be angry toward you. And so we have a lot of truth in regard to the family, not just the gospel and how to be saved, but now how to live out that truth in our day-to-day lives. Now, how do we stand in righteousness? Because what we've learned is that truth sometimes reveals to me that I'm not living up to the standard that God has set. I'm not living a truthful life. I'm not, I'm not living an honest life. I'm living dishonestly because there are things that I know that the Bible says that are true that I should be doing that I'm not doing. So therefore, the, the thing that I feel then is guilt. I feel conviction and sometimes we feel condemnation because we know that there are things in our lives that we are not doing and as a result of that the enemy comes and he whispers you're a liar you're a thief you're not worthy you're guilty you are condemned So truth by itself, if that was the only aspect of the weaponry that God gave us, the armor to wrap ourselves with would be inadequate, I think, to combat the enemy. And so he says to us to stand therefore. That word stand, as we saw last week, means to stand without wavering. It means to endure in a place regardless. It means to withstand with courage, to put forward the effort to overcome. It means that, that I stand when opposition comes. I don't run, duck. I don't coward. I, don't, I, I, I just stand. I stand against him. I saw the other day uh, one of the, one of the uh, Marines who was talking about the fact this whole concept of, of kneeling at the American flag and and all of that and he said I don't know about those guys but I'm going to tell you that when I stand when I'm facing my enemy if the, if we are his enemy as as a soldier I'm going to stand because kneeling is a position of 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 being vulnerable to the enemy and I thought that was very insightful that when the enemy attacks us and charges us we must stand not coward not not run and duck Not turn away and go the other way, but to stand against whatever he throws at us. How do we do that? Stand, therefore, with what? The belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. What is righteousness? Let me give you the the really difficult explanation of righteousness. It's a state of legal standing, satisfying the moral requirements of God's character, a verdict of acquittal pronounced to each believer, or the ethical righteousness in which each believer should live. Pretty heavy definition. Let me tell you what it says very, very easily. It simply means that I'm no longer guilty. I'm standing in righteousness. And, and it means that now because of my faith in Jesus, I heard the truth of the gospel. I turned from my sin and turned to Christ. And once I have turned from my sin and turned to Christ, I am now am positioned in the righteousness that is not my own, but a righteousness that is mine because of what Christ did on the cross. It's not based upon what I do, but it's based upon what he has done. And it has been finalized. It is complete. All the work is finished. And now I can stand, whatever the enemy comes at me, I can stand fully guarded with the breastplate of righteousness. I'm in a right relationship with God. Why? Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus did. My faith in him now brings me into a right relationship with God. And now I relate to him rightly. And that relationship can never be lost. Let me tell you, let me say that one more time. That relationship can never be lost. 
I don't care what you do or fail to do, you can, you can never lose that relationship. He will never turn his back on you and disown you. He won't. And there are three types of standing that I want to talk about very quickly this morning. The first, as we stand in the righteousness of Christ, there is a personal righteousness that's very important. I've alluded to it already, and I'm not talking about self-righteousness because we see absolutely nowhere in the Bible, anywhere, that I am to stand before God in my own righteousness because I don't possess a righteousness that is worthy to stand before a holy God. I am a sinner, and because I'm a sinner, I deserve not to be able to come into the presence of God because of my sin. We're not talking about self-righteousness, but we're talking about a personal righteousness in which I have placed my faith, my trust in Jesus, and based upon that, that I now have a personal righteous relationship with God the Father through faith in his son Jesus. Philippians 3 9 says, and to be found in him. It's a beautiful passage. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. In other words, when I place my faith and trust in Jesus, I'm no longer an enemy with God. He is my friend. I am in a right relationship with him. So I come to him in a personal righteousness that is not my own, but it's something that I have put my faith and trust in. Because I have, in other words, your mom and dad can't do it for you. Your grandma and grandpa can't do it for you. I can't do it for you. Natalia had to do it for herself. She had to come to the realization that she was a sinner and she needed Christ. And she turned from her sin and put her faith and trust in Jesus. She went through a study to learn more about what that means. And having completed that study and, and those who led her in that study believing that she understood fully what she did, we baptized her. And now she has a righteousness that is hers in Christ. So it is hers, but it's not hers. It's not self-righteousness, but it's one that she possesses because of her faith and trust in Christ. Number two, personal righteousness leads us to a positional righteousness. When I come to faith in Jesus, I have a position of righteousness. I stand on a righteousness, not of my own doing, but in the doing that Jesus did. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. I have a position now that is mine in Christ. I am standing on, standing in righteousness. I am standing on not my righteousness, but on Jesus' righteousness. And I can never lose that position. Once I'm in it, I am secured in it. I am anchored in it. My feet are glued on it. And it's mine forever. A positional righteousness where I stand before God and he looks at me not through what I have done, but through what Christ has done. Not because of what I do, but because what he did forever. And so I should never be afraid of coming into the presence of God ashamed of what I have done. He already knows what I've done. But I come before him in a position of righteousness, a right standing with him because of what Christ did for me, which leads us to a third righteousness, which is a practical righteousness. Now, because I personally have accepted Christ and I now possess a righteousness that Christ gave me, and I'm positioned on that right righteousness, I'm anchored in that righteousness in a way that I can never lose it. 
Why should I then live the life that God has called me to live? I know some people want to say, well, you, you have demotivated people. You've taken the reason away for people living out the life that Christ called them to live. If you can't guilt them to live right, then what do we have? And there are a lot of religions out there who will tell you that it's about what you do, not about what Christ did. And they will guilt you to doing the right thing so that you can earn God's favor. That's the wrong motivation. The reason we do what we do is because of my personal relationship with Jesus and what he has already done. Now I do it in order to imitate his likeness, to be like him. It's out of love and respect, not just simply out of guilt, but out of love. Ephesians 2, 6 and 10, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but one of the verses says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why did he call you? Why did he rescue you? Why did he save you? Because he has a plan and a purpose for your life, and that plan and purpose includes things that he's prepared beforehand so that you should walk in them. There is a lifestyle that he wants you to live. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, one of the verses says, to put off your old self and to put on your new self. Your old self had no desire to live for Jesus whatsoever. You were incredibly self-centered. You lived the life that you wanted to live, going where you wanted to go, doing what you wanted to do, becoming what you wanted to become. And then you turned from, from this life to the new life. You disrobed yourself of those old filthy rags, and you put on the new ones now. And now you are living out this life that God has called you to live because of respect and out of love for him. You want to be... You want to reflect the likeness of Jesus. How many children have played hide-and-go-seek? You still play that today? How many of you play follow the leader? Still play that? What happens when you play follow the leader? One person is the leader, right? And then everybody gets in line and everybody follows the one leader, right? Right. Who is our leader? Children, who's our leader? Jesus is our leader, right? And who are we to follow? Jesus. Why do we follow him? Because we've made him our savior. We have placed our faith and trust in him. Now we have been saved and we have said from now on, I am turning from a life of sin and I'm turning to a life in where I'm going to follow you, Jesus, as your disciple. And I'm going to go where you want me to go. I'm going to become who you want me to become. I'm going to live like you want me to live. Not because of you're going to spank me if I don't or you're going to punish me if I don't, but because you're my leader, because I have committed to you the leadership of my life. And I want to look like you. I want to imitate you. I want to follow you. And so we follow Jesus. That's the reason why we have this beautiful relationship with God the Father through faith in his Son, a standing in righteousness. And you know what Satan tries to do, kids? The enemy, the devil, he will try to do everything he can to whisper in your ears, you don't have to follow him. You don't have to go there. You don't have to do that. You can become anything you want. You can go anywhere you want. You can listen to anything you want. You can look at anyone or anything you want. And Jesus the whole time is saying, no, I want you to follow me. Follow me. 
And we need to understand that Satan's greatest temptations, children, is this, to get you to follow him rather than following Jesus. It's not just children that have that problem. It's parents, too, and grandparents as well. And we've got to understand that we must imitate Christ and follow his example to stand in his righteousness because the enemy is going to come against you husband and you wife and you parents and you grandparents and yes, you who are children and it's going to try to get you to say, follow me instead of follow Jesus. But we must stand in a righteousness, a godliness, a holiness, a likeness to him. Number two, we must strive for righteousness. There's a stride here in that we must strive for righteousness because we not only should stand, but we should strive for righteousness. Notice that the passage says to stand and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now it is true that the Roman soldier, when he went to battle, when he prepared for battle, he put on what, what looked kind of like a vest. You know what a vest looks like? It's one of those things that kind of covers here, and there's holes here for your arms. Or there's no sleeves, and you put it on, and it kind of comes down to here, and there's a vest, and it may button up. And the Roman soldier used to put on that. It was kind of like a vest, and uh, it was made of really, really thick leather, or sometimes it was made of, of metal that they would beat so that it would be hard, so that a sword or a spear or an arrow couldn't penetrate it, and it protect the vital organs right here. And those vital organs, as you can imagine, what kind of organs do you have right here? You have a heart, right? And you have lungs that you're breathing with, right? And you have a stomach that's probably hungry right about now, Right? And so in the Hebrew thought, when this passage was written, the people, when they heard that, understood that what he was saying, basically, is, is to protect the passions, to check the, de the, the, the devotions, to check the things that you loved in your heart. You know, you have some things in here that you really, really like, and some things you don't like, or you don't like at all, right? How many of you like asparagus? You do? Broccoli? Mud? Mud. You know, we have some, some desires, some cravings, some things in us that we want. That's what the heart is. It has some passions, some desires, some cravings. You know, the enemy, what he tries to do is tries to mess with our heart to try to get us to have desires that we shouldn't have or things that we, shouldn't, that we don't need and things that are really against God. The stomach also re represented the mind, what people thought, is the bowels. And so the heart and the mind. Did you know that the enemy sometimes likes to whisper things into our minds to get us to think things that are not true about God, tr not true about yourself, not true about your mom and dad, not true about your spouse, and not true about your relationship to Jesus. And we need to protect what we think. Because our thoughts dictate our desires and our drives, which ultimately dictate the direction of our lives. Because we pursue the things that we think and the passions that we feel, and they sort of drive us. And the enemy sort of comes in and he tries to, tries to do that. And we're going to talk about the lungs too, which is really important. Not talked about in a lot of the 
the weaponry that we find in this armor, the description, but I think the lungs are very important in describing the pneuma, or the Spirit of God, which he breathes into us, the new life in Jesus. So we're going to talk about, really very quickly, those three things. So how do we, how do we strive for righteousness? How do I, I, I got to put some, you know, I accepted Jesus, and now he gives me his righteousness, and he anchors me in that righteousness, and I can never lose Jesus. Once he comes into my heart, he builds a permanent residence in my heart. He never leaves. And I'm always accepted before God. But yet I'm, I, I need to practice it. I need to strive for it. I need to, not because, you know, he's going to beat me up if I don't, or he's going to be really angry at me, but because I love him, and I respect him, and I trust him. So how do I strive for this kind of righteousness? Having put on, how do I dress myself for battle? How do I, you put on your clothes this morning, didn't you? Now, you were clothed with righteousness when you, when you accepted Jesus. So what he's saying to us is keep them on. Don't take them off. Use them for the purpose for which God gave them to you, this breastplate of righteousness. So how do I do that? Number one, I need to resist sin. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I, Paul, urge you to walk in a manner, what, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To walk worthy. There's an aspect of how we live, and this whole concept of walking, he's basically saying, I want you to live in a way that is worthy of Jesus. How did Jesus live? Without sin. That's what made him Jesus. He never sinned. That's not going to be reality in your life, is it? Are you ever going to live one day without sin? Is there ever going to be a day, a single day, where you will live without sin? Probably not. But you need to still resist it. Because we have been called to live a life that has been set free from not just the condemnation of that sin, the, the guilt of that sin, but also I think we've been set free in order to live the life that God has called us to live. And we need to resist sin. And sometimes resisting sin is hard, isn't it? I spoke to a young man last week that had a hard time with that. Somebody said something to him. He said something back. He had a temptation to slug him, and what did he do? He slugged him. When somebody says something to you that's mean, what do you have a tendency to say? Say something back that's mean, right? When somebody cuts you off, mom and dad, in the car, when you're driving to church, what do you have a tendency to do? Forgive and love? Come on. Your children hear you from the back seat. It's hard to resist sin. I mean, Ephesians 4.27 says, give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give him any opportunity, Pastor Mark. That's his favorite word. Whenever he says, there's an opportunity here, run from him. Because that means there's a trouble coming along, and he wants you to help him deal with it. Give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give him an opportunity. Don't open the door of your heart. Don't open your eyelids and look where you shouldn't look. Don't listen to things that you shouldn't listen to. Don't, don't, be, don't say things you shouldn't say. Don't give Satan opportunity. He will take every opportunity you give him to knock you off your feet and to destroy you if he can't. 
resist sin. Number two, just because I resist it doesn't mean I'm always going to resist it. I'm going to give in to it. So obviously, when I sin, I need to repent. I need to come and say, you know, God, I, I admit that I have sinned and I'm sorry. But when you say that, be really sorry. Because children, isn't it true that sometimes when you tell mom and dad you're sorry, you're not really sorry? Aren't you? Yeah, we're still arguing over some cookies that were in a cookie jar in, in my house. And, and even some, um, some, some candy that somebody brought from the United States or Brazil. And somebody ate the, the candy and hid the wrappers under my bed. And my parents still talk about this, and it's been like 50 years. And they blame me for it. I don't know why. But I didn't do it, mom and dad who are watching today. I'm still going with that story. But it's true. I don't remember eating them. And it was either my brother or my sister. But they're not one bit sorry that I got blamed for their wrongdoing. But once I feel sorry for it, that's not enough. Because to repent means I acknowledge that I have sinned and I did what was wrong. But I turn my back on it and I make a commitment to do it no more. Do it no more. There's nothing worse than somebody say, you know what, I have sinned and I'm sorry. And they keep doing it over and over and over and over again. You know what that tells me? They didn't repent. Because as Ephesians 4.21 says, assuming, that's not a question, but because that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus... Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put away those, those bad habits, those evil thoughts, those actions that are not pleasing to God. Turn your back on them and put on the new self to repent. Once I repent, I need to then reflect my salvation. There's an aspect about reflecting who I really am. Not because I'm pretending, but because it's true. Ephesians 2.24 says, And be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You have a new self. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you became a new person. And now as a new person, you're not that old person anymore. So don't live like that old person anymore. Live like the new person that you are in Jesus. The new person that is humble and open and honest and wants to please Jesus and wants to be the husband that your wife needs to be and the wife that your husband needs for you to be and the parent that your children need and the children that your parents need you to be. It's, it's a reflection of that salvation and you as a family are reflecting who you are in Christ in a community that is without Christ so that they can see Jesus in you. Ephesians 4 17, 18, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. And how do they walk? Due to the hardness of their heart. You were once that, but now you're not. You're new people, new creations to reflect who Jesus is. And then lastly, we need to raise the spirit. To raise the spirit. What do you mean by that? Well, look at Ephesians 4, 13. In him... You also, 
When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. I think the Apostle Paul was a charismatic Baptist. Okay? And you might want to say maybe he was Pentecostal. I know some of you came from a Pentecostal background. You finally saw the light and came to the Baptist light. I get it. Uh, and some of you are kind of charismatic, and I get that. I am, I am Bapticostal myself. And the Apostle Paul believed strongly in the Holy Spirit because he realized that even though they possessed righteousness because of Jesus, okay, and they were anchored in the, in the righteousness of Christ, never to be lost, never to lose that, 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 that righteousness, that right standing with God, And even though they sought to practice it, they knew that in spite of their best discipline, their hardest effort, they couldn't do it. Let me tell you something. Here's the secret. You cannot, you cannot be good by yourself. You just can't do it. You can't. I don't know why this is coming to the top of my head, but I would say it anyway. It's kind of like that monk that uh, decided the only way to be good was to go to a monastery in the deep jungles of somewhere where the world wasn't at all, and he went, and he signed up. And every year he was allowed two words, two words every year. The first year, after he was there a whole year, didn't speak a word, lived in this monastery totally and completely away from the world. He was finally given an opportunity to say two words, and he said, bed hard. A year later, he was allowed two more words. He said, food cold. On the third year, finally, he stood before the the other monks who were there, and his final two words were, I quit. You know what the monk said? We're not surprised. You've been complaining the whole time you've been here. You know, I don't care how remote you live away from the world, how you try to keep television out of your house or or guard your children from the right kind of movies or put them in the right kind of schools or, or homes, whatever you do, your children are children and you are human parents and you cannot avoid sin by yourself. You need a resource, you need a power greater than yourself to tap into that not only enables you to engage the enemy, but empowers you to do that. Who is that person? He is the Holy Spirit that came into our hearts the moment we place our faith and trust in Christ. He was in the whole process of salvation. I don't have time to talk about that, but he, boom, he built his home in your heart and the Spirit of God lives in your, inside of you right now. And all of God lives in you through his Spirit. And that means all the power of God lives inside of you through his spirit. And how powerful is God? No one, no one, not even the devil is more powerful than God. That's why James says you can submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. He has no choice. Ephesians 1.17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The Holy Spirit will give you the option out. He will show you the way. He will give you the wisdom that is necessary to say no to this person and to reject this this temptation or to escape from this, this entrapment. 
And all you have to do is say, Holy Spirit, give me wisdom. Help me understand. How can I? And he will give you wisdom. Notice the passage in Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. That according to the riches of the glory, he may he may grant you to be strengthened. Notice, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Who strengthens you to live out the life that Christ has called you to live? You? Or is it the spirit of God living in and through you? You know why some of us are defeated? Because we're doing it in our own power. We're doing it in our own power rather than in Christ's power through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Did you know that when you sin, you grieve the Holy Spirit? And it's hard to have an intimate personal relationship with someone when you have grieved them because of what you either failed to do or you have done. And the Holy Spirit has a sensitivity about him. And when we grieve him, how can we tap into him when what we are doing grieves him? You can't live in disobedience. You can't live in disobedience and live a powerful life for Christ because your disobedience grieves the Holy Spirit and it's his power that you need to be able to walk the walk and live the life notice lastly the last passage I do not get drunk with wine obviously these people were good Baptist but it should have said don't drink wine at all but anyway and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but what be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I wish I had time to talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, but what does that simply mean in a nutshell? It simply means that, uh, that God is sovereign, that he is Lord, that he is in control, that he is at the steering wheel of my life, and I am yielding to him complete and total control. That's what it means, to be filled with the Spirit. Because when he is the sovereign, when he is the Lord, when he is in the driver's seat, when I am yielding to him and tapping into him, listening to him and living for him and following him, the end result is I will be filled with the Spirit. There are no magical words that you have to say and no little sentence that you have to do or no one laying special hands on you for you to receive the filling of the Holy Spirit because at conversion you receive the Holy Spirit. Now he needs a well up in you like a, like a well. I have a well in my backyard. It doesn't really look like a well, but there's a pump <laughs> into the ground that brings water from the ground up and waters my yard. Because water in Rose Hill is very expensive. It's Wichita water, I think. There's a, there's a well inside of you. And his name is the Holy Spirit. And when we tap into him, he wells up. And he just does it through us. As we yield to him our life and our love. I want to end with this interesting story. Several years ago in a newspaper carried a story about an elderly lady who lived in Bid Cypress Swamp in South Florida. You know where this is, Mark? 
You do? You don't. Are you lying to me, Mark? Tanya, is he lying to me? You don't know. Anyway. That's a good out. Holy Spirit must have given you wisdom at that time. Yes. Every day the lady went out to her pond to draw water for her plants. Every day she went to this pond to to draw water from her plants. In the same pond lived an alligator. Got alligators there. Despite the danger, this lady allowed the alligator to live in the pond for years. It seemed tame enough. She didn't bother the alligator and it didn't bother her. However, one day while she was drawing water from the pond, the alligator swam under the water and then plunged up, grabbing the lady's hand with its mighty jaws. She tried pulling her hand out of his mouth, but the gator grip was too much, and the gator ripped it off. Bleeding profusely, the terrified and stunned elderly lady crawled back to her house and called for help. Paramedics finally arrived, and she received the medical attention that she needed. The next day, the park ranger found the alligator in the pond and killed it. And when they cut the alligator open, they found the old lady's hand. The reporters seemed outraged that they had killed the alligator and proceeded to question the park ranger as the reason the alligator needed to be killed. The park ranger told reporters, listen to what he said, alligators are the most dangerous when they lose their fear of humans. By by allowing an alligator to remain in your pond, you knowingly give it the courage to attack. The lady still lives near the swamp, but there are no more alligators in her pond. I think sometimes we buy into the lie of the enemy that sometimes whispers this false narrative or this untruth. There's not really anything bad about your sin. It's not a big deal. It's not really that bad. And we live with it. And sometimes we play with it. But in the long run, that little sin that we somehow have been convinced really doesn't matter is an alligator that will eat you alive given the chance. You cannot, you cannot live the life that Christ called you to live and play with sin. Don't choose it. It has many victims that thought they were stronger and smarter than you. And they've become casualties to sin itself. The only victory we have over sin is Christ. And if today you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus and accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior, you are already defeated already. And we want to enlist you today in the army of God. If you will turn from your sin and turn to Christ, recognize that you are a sinner and that you need forgiveness of sin. Jesus died so that forgiveness can be yours. But you must turn from a life of sin and turn to a life of following Jesus and commit to him your life and your love. Do you need to make that decision today? In just a few moments, we're going to stand. There's a, an invitation over here where we want to extend to you to the next steps area to take that next step 
not only just understanding the consequence of sin and how serious it is, but your need for Jesus. Will you take that step and walk over to the next step? Talk to one of our pastors about your need to accept Jesus and trust him as your Savior and Lord. Maybe you've done that another time, another place. But like Natalia, you need to come forward today and say, you know what? I want to declare my love for Jesus and follow him in baptism and become a full-fledged disciple of Christ. Will you come? Maybe this is your church home and you need to place your life here in the service of Jesus. We invite you to come be a part of our church family as well. Or maybe you're just a Christian and, and you're here and you've been, you know, you've been toying with certain things in your life, not seeing how important they are. Maybe it's a little sin or maybe it's a big sin and you somehow have sort of tried to coexist with it and it's eating you alive. But today you want to be covered in the breastplate of righteousness and claim what is already yours the righteousness of Jesus. Because the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray.